In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The Vigil Mass is a special privilege. For the vast history of the church, a Vigil Mass, which began to celebrate that feast day, which is really the next day, took place for Christmas, for Easter, for Pentecost, for the Assumption, just a few special days. And honestly, when you understand how the, how the vigil is celebrated, you'll realize why. Because Mass was always celebrated in the morning, facing the rising sun, facing east, because the, the rising of the sun in the morning is a symbol to us of the resurrection of Christ and his second coming. Only on a few occasions was the next day's feast considered to be so important that it was permitted for Mass to actually begin in the last few hours of the previous day and then continue on until sunrise. Properly speaking, which for me means, you know, 800 years ago, because I'm, I'm a man of the 70s, the 1270s. <laughs> a vigil mass meant you pray, you kept vigil. You kept vigil through the night until the beginning of the next day. Pretty intense. Certainly it means that whoever was there celebrating that vigil, they were useless for the rest of the next day. So certainly... That's the mass that the parochial vicar was assigned. <laughs> the church in her pastoral prudence has decided to make the vigil mass something of a briefer experience. But notice in our prayers that we are not praying about Christ who has been born we are praying in anticipation of being able to celebrate Christ who has already come into the world in the Blessed Virgin Mary and whose birth we can't wait to celebrate, which is why we're here already. So for these special vigils, the, the prayers and even, even the liturgy of the hours, the prayers that the church puts on the lips of every priest and nun take on a special character. So... Pay attention to how this homily from St. Augustine for Christmas Eve morning sets the tone. Awake, mankind. For your sake, God has become man. Awake, you who sleep. Rise up from the dead, and Christ will enlighten you. I tell you again, for your sake, God became man. You would have suffered eternal death had he not been born in time. Never would you have been freed from sinful flesh had he not taken on himself the likeness of sinful flesh. You would have suffered everlasting unhappiness had it not been for this mercy. You would have never returned to life had he not shared your death. You would have been lost if he had not hastened to your aid. You would have perished had he not come. Let us then joyfully celebrate the coming of our salvation and redemption. Let us celebrate the festive day on which he who is the great and eternal day came from the great 
an endless day of eternity into our own short day of time. Those of us who celebrate this coming of Christ into the world with this same vision of St. Augustine, know the world to be dark and fallen. Know our lives to be adrift at sea. Which makes our joy in celebrating Christmas all the deeper. And so I ask you to pray for a very special group of people. Whether it be here at Mass, in the hours that continue Christmas Eve or tomorrow, continue to pray for a very special group of prayer who need your prayers, all the more so because they do not know that they need your prayers. Namely, I speak of those people who are not spiritually afflicted. Those people who are not aware of the onslaught of evil. Those people who are not unsettled by their sinfulness. Those people for whom the world is a bright and happy place already. And the celebration of Christmas is just it's just icing on the cake. It's just another thing to add to what is already a glorious existence. Pray for them. Some of us have no trouble. We've lost a job in the last few days. A friendship has ended recently. Maybe a loved one has passed away since the previous Christmas. Maybe it's not the events of life, but it's, maybe it's the own, our, our own awareness of our, our internal life. As St. Paul is so painfully aware, I, I do things and I say things I don't want. I don't do the things that I wish I did. I'm a mess. I need a savior. I need to be rescued. We don't necessarily wish calamity on people in and of itself, but we will pray that people find a need for God. Very good friend of mine, Father Jason Birchall, this year he left his, or I should say finished his first assignment at St. Agnes Catholic Church in Arlington where I, I was years ago. And as by schedule, he finished his first assignment and then was shipped off to be full, full-time in the Navy Chaplain Corps. He's serving aboard an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. There are very few more intense places to be a priest. His friends don't need to feel sorry for him because he's surrounded by 19 and 20-year-olds who know that they desperately need God. They're up to their eyeballs in debt. They're being shot at. Their girlfriends at home are unhappy with them or their wives. 
And they know they are not self-sufficient. They know that they need a Savior. There's another group of people that deserve your special prayers as well. Those people who are in darkness, but not a spiritual affliction, not in awareness of their sins, but it's in the darkness of doubt, of not believing anything. That's not a kind of affliction that, that we desire nor want to see in others. Last week, a new story published by Catholic News Agency distilled data that revealed that those people who leave the faith in high school or college, by and large, they've already decided to do so by the time they're age 10 or 13. And the prevailing reason for this decision is the perception that the faith is incompatible with science. It's in the darkness that we can understand what it is to know by faith. We learn a great deal of wisdom when there's a power outage. We realize that we're not wired to stay up until 2 or 3 in the morning. Nobody is. We realize what it's like to spend time with each other, to live a more simple life. But also... We learn a lesson that even when I can't see anything, I know it's there. Do any of us think that just because it's pitch black that my dresser isn't there and the doorknob isn't there and the hallway isn't there? We know it's there. I can't see it. I have no evidence. I have no proof, but I know it's there. As I grilled the eighth graders who were just presented to receive the sacrament of confirmation about a month ago, I encourage you, think about why you believe and how you would explain it to other people. And then for those of you who are feeling a bit mischievous, ask your friends, ask your older relatives why they believe. The first many paragraphs of the gospel today present what seems to be an interminable genealogy. And it's really not a genealogy as much as it's situating Christ in history. We won't make sense of this unless we realize what it means to be father and son. Really, truly, Christ is son of David. Not the immediate son, but eventually the son. Christianity was just as intelligent 2,000 years ago as the smartest people are today. Or go back to the original genealogy, the original account of our origins. If we choose to be foolish, we can set up Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to be contradictory. If we choose to be really foolish, we won't see any discrepancy. 
But if we are people who know that we can have knowledge, even in the darkness, we'll realize that there's a purpose, not a methodology that's being described in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And that faith and reason are meant to go hand in hand. It's not that they're compatible. They're meant to complete each other. And so we celebrate an historical event. The real birth of Christ in time, in history, in a specific place to specific people, speaking a specific language, born into a specific religion. But we're not just marking an historical event. We celebrate the centerpiece of human history. That God didn't just make a beautiful world and permit us to ruin it. But God came to be among us, to suffer with us, and to rescue us. And to the degree that we know the darkness, we celebrate that light that shines on the horizon that leads us forward. That illumines the path that goes to heaven. Do we deserve that? Do we, did we merit that? Can we pat ourselves on the back and say that we figured it out? Or do we just bow down in humble and joyful adoration? Knowing that this is the evidence of how much God loves us, even when we're sinful. Even when we're rejecting him. He comes to us. He's not just the father in the story of the prodigal son who waits at the end of the driveway looking for us. He goes out in search of us like the good shepherd and rejoices that we've been found and that we've come back to life. St. Augustine concludes his homily for Christmas Eve telling us, let us then rejoice in this grace so that our glorying may bear witness to our good conscience by which we glory not in ourselves, but in the Lord. That is why scripture says, he is my glory, the one who lifts up my head. For what greater grace could God have made to dawn on us than to make his only son become the son of man so that a son of man might in his turn become the son of God. Ask if this were merited, ask for its reason, for its justification, and see whether you will find any other answer but sheer grace. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.